It's the 7th of March in the year of our salvation, 2009. This is Saturday in the first week of Lent, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Welcome as our guest today, the Second Vatican Council, which ended in 1965. Yes, we'll have the council here. Actually, we'll just have two paragraphs of their last document, Gaudium et Spes, which is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. We'll also hear another story or two from Giovanni Guareschi's wonderful tales about Don Camillo. And uh, some of your voicemail. So let's get right to work. Today we're going to hear a little bit from Gaudium et Spes. This is the pastoral constitution on the Church in the Modern World issued by the Second Vatican Council. It is uh, the last and uh, one of the most important documents of the council. It was uh, promulgated on the very day the council ended. So to a certain extent, some of the uh, things that manifest themselves in in Gaudium et Spes uh, embody some of the debates the people might have about the council and the council's fruits. Now, this is one of those documents, uh, like so many of them, uh, which did not come from any of the uh, the work of preparatory commissions before the council began. You might know that before the council, there were a bunch of commissions that put together schemata or uh, uh, like drafts and so forth that were originally intended to be the points of debate and consideration of the bishops of the council. But uh, one of the first things the council did was vote to throw those things out, throw out the drafts, throw out the schemata, and then they kind of waded in without a real blueprint for the council, which, of course, you know, led to uh, uh, both amazing and distressing things along the way as the council proceeded, as, a, as it developed and developed. As a matter of fact, it just kind of took on a life of its own and went on year after year. Uh, a pope died, another pope came. It was it was uh, really a dramatic thing to see what happened once those schemata were tossed out. Well, eventually, it would lead to the uh, this pastoral constitution called Gaudium et Spes, Hope and Joy. Uh, of course, the next couple words, you know, uh, as you know, the, the titles of documents of the church come from the first words in Latin, gaudium et spes, means hope, uh, means joy and hope. Of course, the next few words, luctus et angor, is like sorrow and anxiety. Uh, people don't remember that part. So uh, there, there are contrasts right within the very uh, first, like, six words of the of the document we're about to hear a little bit from. Um, so uh, anyway, this this document didn't come from the schemata or preparatory commissions. It came instead from a few bishops who kind of advanced it on the floor. 
as a part of their their own agenda and what they wanted to bring uh, to and then out from the council. Now, the first part of this constitution, and a constitution, by the way, has you know great uh, authority, great uh, impact. Um, Whenever we should just just pause for a moment, you know, this is called a pastoral constitution instead of a dogmatic constitution, and we really don't know just exactly what that means. I mean, if it if it were a dogmatic dogmatic constitution, we would get the sense that this is something that that Catholics are are bound to, you know, believe or embrace or accept. But instead, it's a pastoral constitution, which is a, a strange critter. I mean, it's hard to figure out what that means. Does this mean that, you know, even though it's a constitution and therefore promulgated with great authority, great weight, but it's pastoral. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we they are nice suggestions or, um, you know, that are good observations rather than something Catholics have to believe that they are supposed to, you know, shape practice in a kind of a way or, yeah, it's hard to know just exactly what this is, but never, rather than get bogged down in that, uh, that, you know, perhaps might be one of the debatable points of the document. It's hard to figure out just exactly how to apply it or just exactly what it is. Nevertheless, it's a it's a council of uh, of an ecumenical council uh, promulgated in a very solemn way. Uh, now the very topic of the uh, of the the document too, how the church interfaces or deals with the modern world, uh, it also has its problems because the you know the because <laughs> how the the church how disciples uh, live in the world is itself a matter that is fraught with tension from within because we live, as the old phrase says, you know, in a state of already but not yet. That is, we, you know, Christ is risen. He died and he rose. And in him, we all rose. He ascended into heaven. In him, we all ascended. So we are in this world, but, you know, with so many things fulfilled for us, we are members of the kingdom of God because of what Christ did. And nevertheless, that hasn't come to its fulfillment. As a matter of fact, we can lose that Christ himself uh, talks about this world having its own prince. And he, of course, means the enemy of the soul. So how there is a tension uh, right within the question, how do we live within the world? And of course, this isn't just the world as it was you know, conceived for so long. We're talking about the modern world, the modern world, which, uh, of course, uh, bears the, uh, some would say, the, both the riches and the scars of the Enlightenment, uh, of modern philosophies, uh, of an entirely different way of viewing man, maybe putting man far more at the center of, you know, as the starting point of modern philosophies rather than God. There are all sorts of difficulties. And so uh, the Constitution is, is fascinating and, and, and thorny. Uh, it's a real tangle once you get into it. Uh, and indeed, uh, the document has, uh, um, Gaudium Space has uh, been criticized for focusing too much, uh, too strongly on man himself. It seems to be, uh, to many who read it, less man, uh, more man-centered than it is Christ-centered. As a matter of fact, that was a criticism made by Joseph Ratzinger years ago when he was writing a commentary on Gaudium et Space. He made the, the observation that Gaudium et Space stresses man to such a degree that in some paragraphs um, it seems almost Pelagian. Uh, I think he was talking about paragraph 17. He really didn't like paragraph 17. We don't have time to get into that paragraph, but he, he says that it's Pelagian. Now, Pelagianism, of course, is the, it was the heresy uh, that rose up in the, uh, in the, in the fifth century that, 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 that man has the ability to, uh, in his own will and his own gifts without necessarily grace, but from his own nature to choose not to sin, to, uh, work for his own salvation, that he doesn't need grace to do that. In other words, it's such an optimistic view of man that it pushes the absolutely necessary 
uh, role of God in our lives in order to come to salvation. And uh, that indeed is a, a flaw in some of the language of Gaudium et Spes. It's so focused on man, so optimistic about man, that it seems, at least, to push uh, Christ, uh, at least consideration of Christ to the margin. It doesn't bring Christ into clear focus in the document. So Ratzinger had his criticisms of it. However, Ratzinger at the same time uh, observed that uh, certain sections of the document, of uh, the Constitution, are uh, Christologically have that necessary Christ-centered focus, which can then, you know, perhaps function as a saving lens or hermeneutic through which we can read the rest of the document. In other words, the man-centered parts of it come into a clearer focus because of these Christ-centered paragraphs. Uh, think, for example, the, the paragraphs 22 to 25. These are probably the most famous paragraphs of Gaudium et Spes. Uh, these are, are strongly Christological. Uh, Christ-centered. Uh, these are the paragraphs, for example, 22, the, probably the, 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 doc, the, the paragraph that has been most cited from Gaudium et Spes, and for good reason, is paragraph 22. This is the one in which we hear that, that Christ came into the world to teach, to, to reveal man more fully to himself. You see, that puts the proper perspective on it, the proper logical starting point. The starting point is Christ. We understand ourselves by understanding who Christ is. Christ is the beginning point. Christ is the, the center and the focus. And with that kind of lens, we can bring into greater clarity some of those other parts of the document that just seem not to be interested in Christ or the, or the church at all. Uh, just as a side note, um, one of the young bishops who worked on paragraphs 22 to 25, a young bishop from Poland named Karol Wojtyła, and it was that Lublin uh, philosophy uh, that, that perhaps um, uh, influenced that section, which is the saving grace of Gaudium et Spes. Now, it's interesting also to note that uh, this encyclical, uh, the first encyclical of Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, his encyclical, uh, not his first encyclical, but his encyclical on hope, his second encyclical, called Space Salvi, Benedict did not cite Gaudium et Space a single time, even though the Constitution begins with the words, joined hope. Uh, it's just a very interesting point. We can draw different conclusions from that. Now, um, in the section we're going to hear today, paragraphs uh, 9 to 10, this is from the very first part of Gaudium Spaces, the introductory section on the situation of man in the modern world. Uh, we are going to have a presentation of man's capabilities, and it's very optimistic. You can almost hear the, what I'm talking about, this, this man-centered optimism, where it doesn't really talk about you know, Christ so much. It talks about how wonderful man is. Uh, very optimistic. And, but then it's followed by a very strong presentation of Christ in his church. Christ is being the true foundation of man's salvation rather than, of course, man himself. So it could, you know, if you just were to read the first part and not then get to the second part, you'd come out probably uh, with a very jaded view of what, what the first part is trying to say. Uh, it would just seem to you not, not enough centered on God and too centered on man. But see, we have to read the whole thing and not just, you know, select out certain little parts of it. We have to try to bring it into focus. You know, if you, for example, when you go and get your eyes checked, those of you who need glasses, you know, you could put this kind of funny machine up to your face with all these lenses and they turn the lens, click, how does it look now? Turn the lens, click, how does it look now? Turn the, you know, and it kind of gets, you know, fuzzier and foggier and weirder looking. And then uh, once the, the, the person doing the test for you has figured out what you need, it's really interesting. It like throws a switch and bang, everything comes into greater clarity than it was before. Well, that's what happens when you, ha when you discover 
you know, the key sections of Gaudium et Spes that might help you bring the rest of the document into clearer focus so that you can see it not only as a constitution that has deep flaws in it, but it also has its gems as well and can be useful. You know, whether it's a pastoral constitution or a dogmatic constitution, then we have to understand, you know, what the document is and what the document isn't. So let's hear uh, paragraphs 9 to 10 of Gaudium et Spes. We'll have a little bit of Latin, but uh, we'll just stick with the English for the most part. Ex constitutione pastorali gaudium et spes, concilii vaticani secundi de ecclesia in mundo huius temporis. Mundus hodiernus simul potentem ac debilem se exibet capacem optima vel pessima patrandi, dum ipsi ad libertatem aut servitutem, ad progressum aut regressum, ad fraternitatem aut odium prostat via. Preteria homo conscius fit ipsius esse recte dirigere vires, quas ipse suscitavit et que eum opprimere aut ei servire possunt, unde se ipsum interrogat. From the pastoral constitution of the Church in the modern world of the Second Vatican Council, the world of today reveals itself as at waffle and weak, capable of achieving the best or the worst. There lies open before it the way to freedom or slavery, progress or regression, brotherhood or hatred. In addition, man is becoming aware that it is for himself to give the right direction to the forces that he has himself awakened, forces that can be his master or his servant. He therefore puts questions to himself. The tensions disturbing the world of today are in fact related to a more fundamental tension rooted in the human heart. In man himself, many conflict with each other. On one side, he experience of his many limitations as a creature. On the other, he knows that there is no limit to his aspirations, that he is called to a higher kind of life. Many things compete for his attention, but he is always compelled to make a choice among them, and to renounce some. What is more, in his weakness and sinfulness, he often does what he does not want to do, and fails to do what he would like to do. In consequence, he suffers from a conflict within himself, and this, in turn, gives rise to so many great tensions in society. Very many people, infected as they are with a materialistic way of life, cannot see this dramatic state of affairs in all its clarity or at least are prevented from giving thought to it because of the unhappiness that they themselves experience. Many think that peace in the philosophies that are proposed. Some look for complete and genuine liberation for man from man's efforts alone. They are convinced that the coming kingdom of man on earth will satisfy all the desires of his heart. There are those who despair of finding any meaning in life. They commend the boldness of those who deny all significance to human existence in itself and seek to impose a total meaning on it only from within themselves. But in the face of the way in which the world is developing today, there is an ever-increasing number of people who are asking the most fundamental questions— or are seeing them with a keener awareness. What is man? What is the meaning of pain, of evil, of death, which persist in spite of such great progress? What is the use of those successes, achieved at such a cost? What can man contribute to society, 
what can he expect from society? What will come after this life on earth? The church believes that Christ died and rose for all, and can give man light and strength through his spirit to fulfill his highest calling. His is the only name under heaven in which men can be saved. So, too, the Church believes that the center and goal of all human history is found in her Lord and Master. The Church also affirms that underlying all changes, there are many things that do not change. They have their ultimate foundation in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Similiter credit clavem, Centrum et finem totius humane historiae in domino ac magistro suo inveniri. Affirmat in super ecclesia omnibus mutationibus multa subesse que non mutantur, queque fundamentum suum ultimum in Christo habent, qui est heri, horie, ipse et in secula. Gaudium et Spes, paragraphs 9 to 10 from the introductory section of the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World from the Second Vatican Council. Strongly optimistic about man, even though it talks about the dire things that can come when man is getting it wrong. It's still very optimistic about man, and uh, although very uh, strong about the role of Christ in the Church. You know, there's a tension between those, isn't there? You know, we are fallen. We are wounded. And uh, the, the saving graces that come from baptism don't remove the wounds to our nature, the wounds to our intellect and will that came from the original sin of our first parents. You know, we struggle in this world and we can get things wrong. Uh, and so we could even get into a discussion of the role of authority and faith in this. You know, when we we can use authority in our faith in order to uh, increase our possibility of getting things right. And that's very much, of course, why we need the church who teaches us by authority and the faith, uh, not only supernatural faith, the, the, the theological virtue that we have, but also the faith in which we believe, not just the faith by which we believe. But within that, within that paragraph itself, there was an interesting uh, reference. I, I'm sure you heard the allusion to, St. Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 7, you know that famous part where he says, uh, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Well, that's alluded to, that is a direct quote from that right in this right in this paragraph that I just, the section that I read for you. And, of course, what Paul is saying there, what he's describing is the, the inner tension that everyone experiences in life um, and the awareness that there is there are strong inclinations and inclinations of one height. He talks about the law. There's the inclination of the law, which is a cardinal, the carnal side of thing, which is in conflict with... The, the law of the spirit, the spiritual good, which, you know, comes from grace. And so right within that struggle, the, the council fathers are talking about the necessity of grace. Uh, and, it, and it's in there in hidden ways. Now, 
some people might say, well, yes, but it should be made more explicit. Well, okay. You know, I think that could be a flaw in the document. There are some things that the council documents could have made more explicit if they really, you know, the critics would say, if they really intended it to be read in, in the proper way in keeping with Catholic tradition, they should have made it more explicit. And uh, that leads them to think, well, since they didn't make it more explicit, maybe what they're really trying to do is hide modernism within the texts. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that right here. That's a huge, long, and thorny debate. And it is at the heart of some of the concerns that the leadership and members of the Society of St. Pius X have been advancing for years in their resistance uh, to some of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, part of their problem has been uh, constantly that the council was too man-centered and not enough, and not Christ-centered, God-centered enough. It was too anthropological or anthropocentric and not Christocentric or theocentric enough. That is, it, it adhered too much to modern philosophies um, with their problems and not enough to the traditional teaching of the church within the Christian context and the Christian philosophical and theological approach to all these same problems. You see, the modern world looks at these things through a very different lens than the church does. And when you put those lenses together, you get a, you know, kind of a distorted vision. That's their claim, see? And uh, so they resist these things and they want clarifications about what, is these, what do these things mean? On the one hand, the Vatican is saying, no, you must accept all the documents of the council. On the other side, the Society of Pius X is saying, we are not going to accept these things and we want to have them clarified because we don't know what they mean. Or we rather, we rather think they mean something that you're, uh, that, you know, you're saying they don't mean. And there has to be talks about it. See, I think, folks, we should, uh, you know, get into a read these things. Try to read them with the eyes of faith. You see, I think that, that perhaps that some in, on the Society of Pius X side see a boogeyman where they're not there even though there might be some there, perhaps they're seeing too many. And on the other hand, perhaps there is a kind of a, a tendency to turn these dogmas, these dogmas, these constitutions, these documents from the Second Vatican Council into a kind of a super dogma, as um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, as Cardinal years ago, warned about. We shouldn't turn the council's documents into a super dogma that are untouchable, unassailable. You're not permitted to question them or even what they mean, or even, you know, you're not permitted to question even if it was a good idea to have the, the, a document or the, the council or whatever. Not, ever, not everything is, you know, a sacred cow. We shouldn't turn these things into idols. You know, we have to approach them well and intelligently and prudently looking, you know, to see if there are flaws there, trying to work it out, you know, is it really a flaw? Is it a flaw that can be corrected? Is it a flaw that, you know, can be read properly? Is it irredeemable? I mean, we have to figure these things out, but we have to do so, so always, always, always with our hearts open to the truth and finally listening to what Holy Church tells us authoritatively about the questions we raise. <laughs> Let's now hear two more stories from the little world of Don Camilo by Giovanni Guareschi. I started reading these stories a while ago in other podcasts, and you can find them very easily by consulting the podcast page on the blog WDTPRS. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. These are wonderful stories about a little town in northern Italy along the banks of the Po River, and they take place in the time after World War II, when the, in Italy there was a struggle for control between the communists and the Christian democrats. Now, the main characters are, of course, Don Camillo, Don Camillo Tarocci, a big powerful man, very physically very strong and very passionate, and then also his nemesis, the communist mayor, Big Joe, in Italian, Peppone, and of course the large crucifix in the parish church with whom 
Don Camilo converses on a regular basis. These stories are wonderful because they have little insights into the human condition and, of course, also into how to apply our Catholic faith sometimes uh, when we are uh, just alone with our consciences or running into conflicts with people. These stories can maybe give us a little insight. So we're going to hear two more stories from the little world of Don Camillo, the first in a series of books by Giovanni Guareschi. Today we will hear about the return to the fold and also the defeat. Return to the Fold The priest who was sent to substitute in the parish during Don Camilo's political convalescence was young and delicate. He knew his business, and he spoke courteously, using lovely polished phrases that seemed to be newly minted. Naturally, even though he knew that he was only in a temporary position, this young priest established some small innovations in the church, just as any man will, if he is to be tolerably at his ease in strange surroundings. On the first Sunday following the new priest's arrival, the congregation noticed two important novelties. The great candlestick that held the paschal candle which always stood on the second step of the gospel side of the altar had been shifted to the epistle side and placed in front of a small picture of a saint, a picture which had not been there before. Out of curiosity and respect for the new priest, the entire village was present, with Peppone and his henchmen in the front pews. Look, muttered Brisco to Peppone with a chuckle, pointing out the candlestick, changes. Hmm, mumbled Peppone irritably, and he remained irritable until the priest came down to the altar rail to preach. At that point, Peppone had had enough, and just as the priest was about to begin, he left his companions, marched up to the candlestick, grasped it firmly, carried it past the altar, and placed it in its old position on the second step to the left. Then he returned to his seat in the front row, and, with knees wide apart and arms folded, stared arrogantly straight into the eyes of the young priest. "'Well done,' murmured the entire congregation, not accepting Peppone's political opponents. The young priest, who had stood open-mouthed watching Peppone's behavior, changed color, stammered somehow through a brief sermon, and returned to the altar to complete his Mass. When he left the church, he found Peppone and his men waiting. The church square was crowded with silent and surly people. "'Listen here, Don—' "'Don whatever your name is,' said Peppone in an aggressive voice. Who is this new person whose picture you have hung on the pillar to the right of the altar? St. Rita of Kasha, stammered the little priest. Then let me tell you that this village has no use for St. Rita of Kasha or of anywhere else. Everything had better be left as it was before. I think I'm entitled, the young man began, but Papone cut him short. Ah, so that's how you take it. "'Well, then let me speak clearly. "'This village has no use for a priest like you.' "'The young priest gasped. "'I cannot see that I have done anything. "'I'll tell you what you've done. "'You've committed an illegal action. "'You have attempted to change an order "'that the permanent priest of the parish "'established in accordance with the will of the people. "'Hurrah!' shouted the crowd, "'including the reactionaries.' The little priest attempted a smile. 
If that's all that's wrong, everything will be put back exactly as it was before. Isn't that the solution? No, thundered Pipponi, flinging his hat behind him and putting his enormous fists on his hips. And may I ask why? Pipponi had reached the end of his supply of diplomacy. Well, he said, if you really want to know, it is not a solution, because if I give you a sock on the jaw, I would send you flying at least fifteen yards, while if it were the regular incumbent, he wouldn't move so much as an inch. Pipponi didn't go on to explain that if he hit Don Camillo once, the latter would hit him half a dozen times in return. He left it at that, but his meaning was clear to all, with the exception of the little priest, who merely stared at him in amazement. "'But excuse me,' he murmured. "'Why should you want to hit me?' Pepponi lost patience. "'Who in the world wants to hit you? There you go, running down the left-wing parties!' I used a figure of speech merely to explain our views. I'm not wasting time hitting a peanut of a priest like you. On hearing himself called a peanut of a priest, the young man drew himself up to his full five feet four inches. His face grew purple, and the veins in his neck swelled. You may call me a Peanut, he cried in a shrill voice, but I was sent here by ecclesiastical authority, and here I shall remain until ecclesiastical authority sees fit to remove me. In this church you have no authority at all. St. Rita will stay where she is, and as for the candlestick, watch what I am going to do. He went into the church, grasped the candlestick firmly, and, after a considerable struggle, succeeded in moving it to the epistle side of the altar in front of the new picture. There, he said triumphantly. Very well, replied Pipponi, from the church door. And then he turned to the crowd in the church square and shouted, The people will have something to say about this. To the town hall, all of you! and we will make a demonstration of protest. Hurrah! howled the crowd. Pepone elbowed his way to the front so that he could lead the people, and they followed him yelling and brandishing sticks. When they reached the town hall, the yells increased in volume, and Pepone yelled also, raising his fist and shaking it at the balcony of the council chamber. "'Pepone!' shouted Brusco in his ear. "'Are you crazy? Stop yelling! Have you forgotten that you yourself are the mayor?' "'Hell!' exclaimed Pepone. "'When these accursed swine make me lose my head, I don't remember anything.' He ran upstairs and out onto the balcony, where he was cheered by the crowd, including the reactionaries. "'Comrade citizens!' shouted Pepponi. We will not suffer this oppression that offends our dignity as free men. We shall remain within the bounds of the law so long as may be possible. But we are going to get justice, even if we must resort to gunfire. In the meantime, I propose that a committee of my selection accompany me to the ecclesiastical authorities and impose in a democratic manner the desires of the people." "'Hurrah!' yelled the crowd, completely indifferent to logic or syntax. "'Long live our Mayor Pepone!' When Pepone and his committee stood before the bishop, the mayor had some trouble finding his voice, but at last he got going. "'Excellency,' he said, "'that priest you have sent us is not worthy of the traditions of the leading parish of the district.' The little bent-over bishop raised his head in order to see the top of Pepone. "'Tell me now, what has he been doing?' Pepone waved his arms. "'For the love of God! Doing? He hasn't done anything serious. In fact, he hasn't done anything at all. The trouble is that—oh, well, he's only half a man. You know what I mean, a priestling. When that guy is all dressed up— your eminence must excuse me, but he looks like a coat hanger loaded with three overcoats and a cloak. The old bishop nodded his head gravely. But do you, he asked very graciously, find out the merits of priests with a tape measure and a weighing machine? 
No, Excellency, replied Peponi. We aren't savages, but all the same. How shall I put it? Even the eye needs some satisfaction, and in matters of religion it's the same as with a doctor. There's a lot to be said for personal appearance and moral impressions. The old bishop sighed. Yes, yes, I understand perfectly. But all the same, my dear children, you had a parish priest who looked like a tower, and you yourselves came and asked me to remove him. The pony wrinkled his forehead. Excellency, he explained solemnly, it was a question of casus belli, an affair sui generis, as they say. That man was a multiple offense in the way he exasperated us by his provocative and dictatorial poses. I know, I know, said the bishop. You told me all about it when you were here before, my son, as... And as you see, I removed him, because I fully understand that I had to deal with an unworthy man. One moment, if you will excuse me, Zmiltso interrupted. We never said he was an unworthy man. Well, well, if not an unworthy man, continued the bishop, at any rate, an unworthy priest, inasmuch as— I beg your pardon, Peponi interrupted. We'd never suggested that as a priest he— failed in his duty. We only spoke of his serious defects, of his very serious faults as a man. Exactly, agreed the old bishop. And since the man and the priest are inseparable, and a man such as Don Camilo represents a danger to his neighbors, we are at this very moment considering making his present appointment a permanent one. We will leave him where he is, among the goats at Punta Rosa. Yes, we will leave him there, since it has not yet been decided whether he is to be allowed to continue in his functions, or whether we shall suspend him a divinis. We will wait and see. Peponi turned to his committee, and there was a moment's consultation. Then he turned again to the bishop. Excellency, he said in a low voice, and he was sweating and looking pale, as though he found difficulty in speaking audibly. If the ecclesiastical authority has its own reasons for doing such a thing, of course, that is its own affair. Nevertheless, it is my duty to warn your excellency that until our regular parish priest returns to us, not a soul will enter the church." The bishop raised his hands. "'But, my sons,' he exclaimed, "'do you realize the gravity of what you are saying? "'This is coercion.' "'No, Excellency,' Peponi explained. "'Our decision is simply a question of availing ourselves of democratic liberty, "'because we are the only persons qualified to judge whether a priest suits us or not, "'since we have had to put up with him for nearly twenty years.' Vox populi vox dei, sighed the old bishop. God's will be done. You can have him back. But don't come whining to me later on about his arrogance. Peponi laughed. Excellency, big bruisers like Don Camillo don't really break any bones. We came here before as a political and social precaution to make sure that Redskin here didn't lose his head and throw a bomb at him. "'Redskin yourself,' retorted the indignant Zmilzo, whose face Don Camillo had dyed red and whose head had come in contact with Don Camillo's bench. "'I never meant to throw any bombs. I simply threw a firecracker in front of his house to let him know that I couldn't be knocked on the head even by a reverend parish priest in person. "'Ah, then it was you, my son, who threw the firecracker,' said the bishop mildly. "'Well,' Excellency, you know how it is. When you've been hit on the head with a bench, you may go too far to get even. I understand perfectly, replied the bishop, who was old and knew how to take people in the right way. Don Camillo returned ten days later. How are you? asked Peponi, meeting him just as he was leaving the station. Did you have a pleasant holiday? Well, it was a bit dreary up there. Luckily, I took a deck of cards with me and worked off my restlessness playing solitaire, replied Don Camillo. He pulled the cards from his pocket. 
but now I don't need them any more, he said, and delicately, with a smile, he tore the deck in two as though it were a slice of bread. We are getting old, Mr. Mayor, sighed Don Cavillo. To hell with you and those who sent you back here, muttered Beppone, turning away. Don Camillo had a lot to tell Christ. Then, at the end of their chat, he asked with an air of indifference, What kind of fellow was my substitute? A nice lad, cultured, and with a sweet nature. When someone did him a good turn, he didn't bait him by tearing up a pack of cards under his nose. Lord, exclaimed Don Camillo, raising his hands, there are people who have to be thanked that way. I'll bet you that Pepone is saying to his gang right now, and he tore the whole pack across, zip, the misbegotten son of an ape, and he's enjoying saying it. Do you want to bet? No, replied Christ with a sigh, because that is exactly what Pepone is saying at this moment. THE DEFEAT The fight with no holds barred that had been going on for nearly a year was won by Don Camillo, who managed to complete his recreation center while Pepone's People's Palace still lacked all its locks. The recreation center was a very up-to-date affair, a hall for social gatherings, dramatic performances, lectures, and such activities, a library with a reading and writing room, and a covered area for physical training and winter games. There was a magnificent gymnasium, a track, a swimming pool, and a children's playground with swings. Most of the equipment was as yet in embryonic stage, but the important thing was to have made a start. Don Camillo had prepared a lively program for the inauguration ceremony, choral singing, athletic competitions, and a game of soccer. For the latter, Don Camillo had mustered a really formidable team, a task to which he had brought so much enthusiasm that in the team's eight months of practice the kicks he alone had administered to the eleven players were far more numerous than those all the players put together had succeeded in giving to the ball. Peppone knew all this and was very angry. He couldn't bear the thought that the party of the people would have to play second fiddle in the celebration organized by Don Camillo on the people's behalf. And when Don Camillo informed him that, to show his sympathetic understanding of the more ignorant social strata of the village, he proposed a match between their dynamos and his own knights, Pepone turned pale. He summoned the eleven lads of the local team and made them stand at attention against the wall. "'You are to play against the priest's team. You've got to win, or I'll smash in every one of your faces. The party orders it for the sake of the downtrodden.' "'We'll win,' replied the eleven, sweating with terror." As soon as he heard this, Don Camillo mustered the knights and addressed them as follows. "'We are not uncouth savages like our opponents,' he said, smiling pleasantly. "'We are capable of reasoning like gentlemen. With the help of God we shall beat them six to nothing. I make no threats. I merely remind you that the honor of the parish is in your hands and in your feet.' If there is some Barabbas among you who is not ready to give his all, even to the last drop of his blood, I shall not indulge in Pepone's smashing of faces. I'll simply kick his backside to a pulp. The entire countryside attended the inauguration, led by Pepone and his satellites, with blazing red handkerchiefs around their necks. In his capacity as mayor, he expressed his satisfaction at the event, and as personal representative of the people, he emphasized his competent belief that the occasion they were celebrating would not be made to serve unworthy ends of political propaganda, such as were already being whispered by evil-minded persons. During the performance of the choral singers, Peppone was able to point out to Brusco that singing was also a sport, 
inasmuch as it developed the lungs, and Brusco replied that, in his opinion, the exercise would prove even more efficacious as a means of physical development for Catholic youth if they were taught to accompany it with gestures for the improvement not only of their lung power, but also of the muscles of their arms. During the game of basketball, Pipponi expressed a sincere conviction that ping-pong, too, had not only an athletic value, but was so graceful that he was astonished not to find it included in the program. Since these comments were made in voices that could easily be heard half a mile away, the veins in Don Camilo's neck were very soon swelled to the size of cables. He therefore awaited with indescribable impatience the hour of the soccer match. At last it was time. White jerseys with a large K on the breast for the eleven knights, red jerseys bearing the hammer, sickle, and star, combined with an elegant D, adorned the eleven dynamos. The crowd ignored symbols and hailed the teams in its own way. Hurrah for Pepone! Hurrah for Don Camilo! Pepone and Don Camilo looked at one another and exchanged slight and dignified bows. The referee was a neutral, the clockmaker Binella, apparently a man without political opinions. After ten minutes' play, the police sergeant, pale to the gills and followed by his two equally pallid subordinates, approached Pepone. "'Mr. Mayor,' he stammered, "'don't you think I should telephone to the city for reinforcements?' "'You can telephone for a division, for all I care. But if those butchers don't let up, there will be a heap of corpses as high as the first-floor windows. His Majesty the King himself couldn't do a thing about it, do you understand? howled Pepone, forgetting the very existence of the Republic in his blind fury. The sergeant turned to Don Camilo, who was standing a few feet away. Don't you think, he stammered, but Don Camilo cut him short. I simply think that nothing short of the personal intervention of the United States of America will prevent us from swimming in blood if those Bolsheviks don't stop disabling my men by kicking them in the shins, he shouted. I see, said the sergeant, and went off to lock himself in the barracks, although perfectly aware that the usual squelch to such behavior is a general attempt to set fire to the police barracks. The first goal was made by the knights, and the crowd sent up a howl that shook the church tower. Peppone, his face distorted with rage, turned on Don Camillo with clenched fists. Don Camillo's fists were already in position. The two of them were within a hair's breadth of conflict, but Don Camillo saw out of the corner of his eye that all other eyes present were fixed upon them. If we start fighting, there'll be a free-for-all, he muttered through clenched teeth to Peppone. All right, for the sake of the people, for the sake of the faith, said Don Camilo. Nothing happened. When the first quarter ended a few moments later, Pepone called the dynamos together. Fascists, he said in a voice thick with contempt. Then seizing hold of Zmilzo, the center forward, as for you, you dirty traitor, suppose you remember that when we were in the mountains I saved your worthless skin three times. If in the next five minutes you haven't made a goal, I'll fix that same skin of yours. Zmilzo, when play was resumed, got the ball and set to work, and work he did, with his head, with his legs, and with his knees. He even bit the ball. He bat his lungs out and split his spleen, and in the fourth minute he sent the ball between the posts. Then he flung himself on the ground and lay motionless. Don Camilo went to the other side of the field, lest his self-control fail him. The knight's goalkeeper was in a very bad temper. The dynamos closed up into a defensive phalanx that seemed impregnable. Thirty seconds before the next break, the referee whistled and a foul was called against the knights. The ball flew into the air. A child of six could not have muffed it at such an angle. Goal. The match was over. All Pepone's men had to do now was pick up their injured players and carry them back to the locker rooms.
the referee, who had no political views, left. Don Camillo was bewildered. He ran off to the church and knelt in front of the altar. Lord, he said, why did you fail me? I have lost the match. And why should I help you more than the others? Your men had twenty-two legs, and so had the dynamos, Don Camillo, and all legs are equal. Moreover, they are not my business. I am interested in souls. Don Camillo, where are your brains? I can find them with an effort, said Don Camillo. I was not suggesting that you should have taken charge of my men's legs, which in any case were the best of the lot. But I do say that you did not prevent that dishonest referee from calling an unjust foul against my team. The priest can make a mistake in saying mass, Don Camillo. Why do you deny that others can make a mistake and yet be in good faith? Errors happen in most circumstances, but not in sport, when the ball is actually there. Binella the clockmaker is a scoundrel! Don Camillo was unable to go on, because at that moment he heard an imploring voice, and a man came running into the church, exhausted and gasping, his face convulsed with terror. They want to kill me, he sobbed. Save me! The crowd had reached the church door and was about to pour into the church itself. Don Camilo seized a weighty candlestick and brandished it menacingly. Back! In God's name or I'll strike! he shouted. Remember that anyone who enters here is sacred and immune. The crowd hesitated. Shame on you, you pack of wolves! Get back to your lairs and pray God to forgive you your savagery. The crowd stood in silence. Heads were bowed, and there was a general retreat. "'Make the sign of the cross!' Don Camilo ordered them severely. And as he stood there brandishing the candlestick in his huge hand, he looked like Samson. Everyone made the sign of the cross. Don Camilo stood back and closed the church door, drawing the bolt, but there was no need. The fugitive had sunk into a pew and was still panting. "'Thank you, Don Camillo,' he murmured. Don Camillo made no immediate reply. He paced to and fro for a few moments, and then pulled up opposite the man. Binella, he said furiously. Binella, here in my presence and that of God, you dare not lie.' There was no foul. How much did that heretic Pepone give you to call a foul in a tied game? Two thousand five hundred lire? Mm -hmm, roared Don Camilo, thrusting his fist under the victim's nose. But then, moaned Binella, Get out! bawled Don Camilo, pointing to the door. Alone again? Don Camillo turned toward Christ. Didn't I tell you that the swine had sold himself? Haven't I a right to be mad? None at all, Don Camillo, replied Christ. You started it when you offered Binella two thousand lire to do the same thing. When Pepone bid five hundred lire more, Binella accepted. Don Camillo raised his hands. Lord, he said, Looking at it that way makes me the guilty man. <laughs> exactly, Don Camillo. When you, a priest, made the first offer, he assumed it wasn't wrong, and then, quite naturally, he took the more profitable bid. Don Camillo bowed his head. And do you mean to tell me that if that unhappy wretch gets beaten up by my men... It will be my fault? In a certain sense, yes, because you were the first to lead him into temptation. Nevertheless, your sin would have been greater if Benella, accepting your offer, had agreed to cheat on behalf of your team. Because then the dynamos would have done the beating up, and you would have been powerless to stop them. Don Camilo reflected a while. In fact, he said, it works out better 
that the others won. Exactly, Don Camillo. Then, Lord, said Don Camillo, I thank you for having let me loose. And if I say that I accept the defeat as a punishment for my dishonesty, you must believe that I am really penitent. Because to see a team like mine who could easily swallow and digest a couple of thousand dynamos, to see them beaten is enough to break one's heart and cries for vengeance to God. Don Camilo, Christ admonished him, smiling. You don't understand me, sighed Don Camilo. Sport is a thing apart. Either one cares or one doesn't. Do I make myself clear? Only too clear. I understand you so well that come now when are you going to get your revenge don camillo leapt to his feet his heart swelling with delight six to nothing he shouted six to nothing that they never even see the ball do you see that confessional he flung his hat up in the air caught it with a neat kick as it dropped and sent it like a thunderbolt into the little window of the confessional goal said christ smiling And now it's time for some of your voicemail. Voicemail comes in to me through Skype, uh, both through Skype itself and also through two phone numbers, one in the UK and one in the USA. So uh, let's hear from uh, one of the callers. Hi, Father Zane. This is Jeff. Um, I go to uh, Society of Science of Tenth Mass in Houston, Texas. I just want to say that I do really appreciate what you do for uh, the traditional faith. And I also want to let you know that Society St. Pius X uh, adherents or regular um, attendees of the Society Mass are not as extreme as some of your uh, commenters would make. We're just trying to live the Catholic faith and uh, we hope for the best and obviously we wish to let everyone know, or I wish to let everyone know that we are the we are part of the Catholic um, continuum, I suppose. Um, and we do really pray for the Pope and wish for the best and hope to live a good Catholic life. Yeah, I think most of us just want to be Catholics. And uh, thank you very much for your your comments about the blog uh, and the work. It's it's difficult sometimes, you know. Uh, the blog didn't start out as a place, you know, to focus on you know, traditional things or tr the older form of mass and all that. It originally started out to look at translations and to you know tell people what the prayer really is saying in its Latin forms, what's really at the heart of what's going on. But the blog has turned into a place also for people to some people to express some of the pain that they have felt for years. And even now, because of the lack of justice and charity shown to them by their pastors and others who don't see that they have a legitimate desire, legitimate aspirations when they want the older things or older traditional forms, or even just not to have abuses in the liturgy. Sometimes they're made to feel like second-class citizens in the church, they're shoved to the edge, shoved, shoved to the margin. You know, they're forced to go to the back door of the restaurant to get food because they're not permitted in the front door. Or they're shoved to the back of the bus simply because they want traditional forms of the sacraments and traditional catechism and decent preaching and liturgy without abuses, liturgy with reverence. They just want to be Catholics, in other words. And I think that a lot of people who go to the chapels of the SSPX, you know, they're not interested in arguing about, you know, whether or not the document on religious liberty from the Second Vatican Council is in keeping with the syllabus of errors. I mean, they just want to have mass. Some people want to argue because some people really like to argue. 
Other people argue because they're deeply concerned and, and really do have concerns. Uh, but most people, I think, they just want to be Catholic. And I think that's got to be a starting point for a lot of us and a reminder to pastors out there, bishops and priests alike, that these people just want to be Catholic. And what they're asking for, they're not asking for something against the council. Most of the time, they're just asking for something that's reverent and that's part of their Catholic identity. It's perfectly legitimate aspiration for them to have these things, to have the older form of Mass, the older form of sacraments, to have a liturgy without abuses in it that sticks to the books, where people or the priests say the black and do the red according to what the book says. That is the right of every Catholic, whether it's in the older form of Mass or the newer form of Mass. And some people, hurt as they have been over and distressed over what they've seen, have turned uh, elsewhere to find what they should be able to get in the normal sphere of things in the church. So we have to have patience, we have to pray, we have to use each other with charity so that the wounds begin to heal. So thank you very, very much for your good and uh, healthy message. Thank you very much for that voicemail. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. to dime, and you say you belong to me, lose my mind, imagine how the world could be, so very fine, so happy together. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, I had a little experiment today. I'm trying to get used to new software, new hardware, uh, everything uh, on a different computer. And uh, I've just tried today to put together this podcast as quickly as I could. I have other pressing things to do, but I wanted to get something out, and I wanted to see if I could reduce my production time. I hope it all worked out, that the audio quality is okay, and you can understand everything. Um, come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com. It's Whiskey, Delta, Tango, Papa, Romeo, Sierra. What does the prayer really say? You can also get there by going to fatherzonline.com if you want to tell your friends about it. Can't remember WDTPRS. I wouldn't blame you if you couldn't remember all of that. So it's fatherzonline.com. And I hope your Lent is going well. I hope you are sticking with your Lenten discipline, the projects that you have set for yourself during this time of spiritual warfare, with time of discipline, uh, both mortifications and also active works of mercy, both spiritual and corporal, uh, toward the poor and toward the needy in their various ways of being needy. And I hope also you're examining your conscience and uh, making a good confession regularly or preparing to make a good confession. It may be that you haven't been for a while. Well, just remember, folks, you know, no amount of inconvenience, no amount of embarrassment can offset the benefits of a good confession. Or, because we don't know the day or the hour, and maybe some of you listening are closer to the end of the beginning, uh, the dire consequences of not making a good confession if you know that you really should be going. So remember, uh, it's Lent, prepare yourselves well, persevere, and please pray for me as I will for you. 